0: By um, 11:40. So now we're moving into considerations for interviewing psychiatric patients, and I like to start with this quote because it reminds us that people don't always know themselves really well. That um, we might think we know ourselves, but we're always a little off. And then someone else might think they know us, and they're usually a a lot more off. And then when you try to come together in a clinical encounter, there's just there's a It's fraught with um, misunderstandings, but we try to work with patients to come closer to an understanding of who they are and what the problem really is. So again, with psychiatric interviewing, the goal is diagnosis, and we base that on history, signs, and symptoms. But there's a few challenges in psychiatric interviewing that don't, don't usually present in medical interviewing. But in general, the goal of both is to help the patient feel accepted, valued, validated, Um, That's the case with every clinical encounter. Medical interviewing can often be a direct course from chief complaint to diagnosis and information gathering. But in psychiatric interviewing, obstacles can arise. What are those obstacles? Sometimes a patient doesn't have good insight into their problem. Sometimes um, if they're delusional, they may not recognize that there is a psychiatric problem. They may not see there's anything wrong with them If they have neurologic problems, let's say um, memory problems, they may not always be aware. And we'll talk about that in the memory lecture, how that can happen. And so when you talk to a patient, you can't always be sure they have insight and they can give you accurate symptoms as to what's going wrong. Some psychiatric patients will be concerned with making a overly positive impression, tell you everything's fine. You may not even be sure why they're there because they're not giving you any problems. And it's usually, at the point in which the time is up, and you say, well, it looks like you're in good health and everything is fine, that they drop the whammy on you. Like, well, I just use cocaine and have sex with random strangers, but other than that, everything's fine, and then see you next week. But usually it's it's very frustrating clinical encounters that they'll want to make a great impression, and then they drop the whammy on you at the end, and you say, okay, well, you know, call the secretary or administrative staff to to cancel my next appointment because this is going to take some more time. So um, it's usually, it's not always straightforward. Um, Patients, uh, actually all of us to some extent, engage in self-deception, right? Um, We may not always see things as they are or present things as they are. Maybe we want to believe things are better than they are or maybe you know, we don't want to be honest about some of our health risk behaviors. And so we might hide some of it from the physician um, or even not acknowledge it to ourselves. So it's up to the physician to use good clinical skills to see the truth behind the deception. And sometimes symptoms are adaptations and they're very difficult to eradicate because they serve a, fu- a purpose or a function for that patient. Um, you, know, you learned about eating disorders and you might wonder why why do some people food restrict, especially if it can even risk their life if they get so thin. And it's it's hard to um, uh, imagine or understand, but sometimes those symptoms are an adaptation. Like in the case if you have a, a child or an, uh, a young woman who goes to college and it's completely overwhelmed and is very perfectionistic, uh, obsessed with getting all A's and simply becomes overwhelmed by the demands of college and maybe food restricts as is having a sense of control. At least one aspect of her life she can have control over and that gives her some sense of peace or calm from from only eating certain foods that are really low in fat. When you try to take that away, then patients um, will resist. And so sometimes symptoms can be adaptations in psychiatric patients and that can be frustrating because they might resist treatment. And then of course with psychiatric patients you have malingering, which is an issue because that's just straightforward, um, just not giving you the information or giving you information that's not accurate. So these are frustrating things to deal with in psychiatric interviewing that don't always come up in medical interviewing. So what are the goals of the psychiatric evaluation? You want to establish the patient's current mental status, and we'll talk about mental status examination. You want to elicit information for diagnosis and it's very important in a psychiatric evaluation that you always address the patient's risk to themselves or others, suicidal and homicidal ideation. So at the end of lecture, we'll talk about how to do that and determine whether they need to be hospitalized um, and then to assess factors that exacerbate or mitigate their symptoms. So assessing their, assessing their home life and whether if you send them back into the home, is that going to exacerbate their symptoms? In the history of present illness for psychiatric symptoms, just like for medical, you're getting the onset, the duration, the intensity, the quality. The quality um, you know, of depression can be different in different patients. In a borderline personality disorder, the quality of the depression might be extremely intense. They might feel toxic and, and, and awful, basically in a complete sense. And that might be different in quality than a patient with major depressive disorder where it's, it's not so all encompassing as in borderline personality disorder. So you wanna just think about and ask the patients to, de- to describe what the depression is like for them in your history of present illness. You wanna document the sequence, so what comes first and you know from you know, differentiating schizoaffective from schizophrenia that the sequence really matters and the environmental context, whether there's some ameliorating or aggravating factors and really important, you want to figure out why are they ne- there at that moment? Why did they make that appointment to meet with you? Sometimes patients live with depression or anxiety for years, but what what brings them to your office in that moment? And that's really important because it's going to help direct your attention and the patient's attention to that aspect of them that wants to be well, that wants to get better. Because psychiatric patients don't always work with you. Sometimes they, they, they go back to thinking that their symptoms are really important and they need them and so they, they'll resist treatment. Um, or sometimes if they're drug users or um, if they're in a manic state, they might like how it feels. So you have to, to always remember why did they come to seek treatment in the first place? There was a reason why that patient just before she left mentions that she's using cocaine and having um, unsafe sex with strangers. She, that part of her wants help although they might not admit that to themselves at every moment and you wanna find that aspect of them because that's what you're working with, that, that um, health promoting aspect of them. And all the stuff that compromises, all the self-deception, all the stuff that gets in the way of treatment, you try to have to ignore it, push it to the side and keep your eyes, fo- keep your focus on the health promoting aspects of the patient. So when you get your psychiatric exam, um, you you get your general medical history. Of course, you gotta get the substance use because that's higher. There are higher rates of substance use and alcohol use in psychiatric patients. Make sure you get your health behaviors, family history, birth and development. You might wanna spend a little bit more time because with psychiatric patients, you're getting some information about the early schemas that develop, their attachment schemas, their internal working models of relationships. So depending on your theoretical orientation you may sp- uh, spend more or less time getting early developmental history. Um, and of course, the neurologic history, like did they learn to read or walk later than other children? You wanna get their work history, their relationship history, or the type of person who never has had relationship, like in a schizoid personality disorder, or um, they're not able to hold down a job, and let's say you know, they, they um, went to school, they have a great degree, but they're never able to, to work because there's some personal personality difficulties that make it difficult for them to be in a workplace. Um, Know their ethnic and religious identification that might inform things like whether they would ever commit suicide. Some people will not commit suicide for religious purposes. So these are just important things to, to ask. And then of course legal status because that might inform malingering or if there's secondary gain. Um, Signs and symptoms, so oftentimes our signs and psychiatric evaluations come from the mental status exam, which you'll learn how to give. And then we have other checklists, uh, Beck Depression, Beck Anxiety Inventory, or just some, the Symptom Checklist 90. These are all self-report. So a patient might feel more comfortable checking a symptom on a list than telling you in person. Or it may be you don't have a lot of time. So you, when they're sitting in the waiting room, they can fill out some self-report inventories that give you information. But on a lot of these inventories, there's a question about suicidal ideation. You always want to look that over before you meet with a patient to find out if that's something you need to spend a lot of time probing in the interview. And then you have clinician-rated measures. So rather than self-report, the, the physician actually fills out a measure w- with a patient. And you have semi-structured interviews like the um, Mini International Neuropsychiatric Interview, which um, probes the current and past history of psychiatric symptoms, and the structured clinical interview um, for the DSM-5, which is very extensive, not often given in clinical context, more often in research, but that helps you arrive at a differential diagnosis. Okay, so now we're gonna think about some of those factors I talked about that can get in the way of information gathering during a clinical interview. Okay, everyone clicked in? Let's see. Yeah, so um, the majority of you said poor because he's not showing awareness of his psychiatric symptoms, but some of you said, well, no, actually it's society, not him. I never can be sure with the A's if you really felt that or you just click A because (laughs) it's a, I I don't know. I've heard sometimes people just click A, so I I won't interpret it too much, but... um, in, in general, we, I hope we can all agree that there are some signs of psychiatric illness here. Primarily the fact that he's yelling for 24 hours straight. I don't care how much of an advocate for whatever cause you are. 24 hours straight is a long time to be yelling on the street. Um, and he also has some delusions, right? Or he has some, he can hear the voice of God, some hallucinations. So we see some psychiatric symptoms there. So we can all agree there's something. Um, but then you say, well, maybe moderate because he knows he has symptoms, but he doesn't belong in the hospital. Well, we're not so sure yet. Um, it sounds like he is in a psychotic state. And so I would say C because he's not showing any awareness of his psychiatric symptoms. He's denying that it's a problem, right? He thinks the problem is everybody else. And this is quite common, especially manic or psychosis. Um, and so sometimes psychiatric patients are actually just not in agreement at all with the clinical staff about the fact that they have an issue, so poor. So now we're gonna dive into the mental status examination. There are um, many reasons for doing it. It establishes the reliability of a patient's self-report. You need to know um, cognitively, are they intact? Are they able to veridically report with accuracy um, their history and, and symptoms? It establishes a neurocognitive baseline. So if you're tracking a patient over time, it actually gives you a number. For This is for a formal mental status examination. So the Folstein, for example, is one you'll be learning that actually gives you a number at the end to track. But mental status examination can be anything. It's just essentially observing the patient in the interview and documenting what you observe. And so if you observe the patient is disoriented, if you observe that they have a poor memory, then you can write that without giving a formal examination. It's just a general term that refers to your observations of their mental status during the clinical encounter. But that is formalized in certain things like the full steam and the mental that you'll learn, it can range in breadth and depth depending on the patient's status and presenting problems. So, in a medical encounter, maybe their mental status is fine. Maybe they just came in because they have a blood pressure, you know, issue, and everything. And so, you just document their thoughts, their emotions, their behavior, all within normal limits. Um, and then you, you know, so that's a kind of more of a limited scope mental status examination as compared to a psychiatric case where you really wanna go in detail about their thought processes, their thought content, their mood and their affect. So in general, data relevant for the mental status part of your documentation is available throughout the clinical encounter. So it's not some special time in the clinical encounter where you observe the patient for certain signs of um, mental status abnormalities. That's happening in, throughout in, the, in the whole time you're interacting with them. But formal mental status exam testing, like you'll learn, is time limited and it has a start and a finish and there's a number of questions and you follow the structure. But in general, observing their mental status is, is happening all the time. So this is, these are the components that you would document and we're gonna go over certain terms, nomenclature, for these different domains. So we'll talk about orientation, which is observed. Their appearance, which you observe. Their motor behavior, which you observe. Their mood, you have to ask, how are you feeling? You can't observe their mood, you have to ask. But you can observe their affect and see how are they giving some emotional expressions and are those normal or not. Their speech and language processes, you observe. But their thought process and their thought form and their thought content, you have to ask them questions to elicit. We're gonna go through each of these. Again, perception is something that you have to ask them about and you observe. And insight and judgment, same thing, you ask them questions to elicit their insight, but you also make observations. And cognitive functioning, same thing, you observe and inquire. And a risk assessment is basically from inquiry, mainly from inquiry. You ask them questions to assess their risk of suicidality and homicidality. So we're gonna go through each of these. For orientation, it's simple. You just say patient oriented by three, which is self, place, and time. Do they know their full name, where they are, the day, month, and year? Or you might see in notes when you go on rotations, patient is oriented by four. That means also by purpose. So usually the the, the shorthand for that is patient oriented by three or patient oriented by four. Three is self, place, and time. Four is self, place, time, and purpose. Um, I know they try to discourage use of of acronyms or shorthand like this in a lot of medical documentation, but you'll see this when you go into hospitals, you look through notes, that's what it means. Appearance, um, you'll use terms to describe them, just basically how they present. If they are drowsy, um, if they look like they're still in some sort of withdrawal state from a drug, if they are on you know comatose scale, lethargic, stuporous, or comatose. Um, if they're confused, if their attention fluctuates, they're there for a minute, then they seem to be off, maybe they have attentional lapses, maybe they're highly vigilant and they watch everything you do. So these are terms you would use in your notes to describe what you see. You would just say whether they're overweight or underweight, it's pretty straightforward. Is there a lack of grooming? Um, Does it look like they've been out on the streets for three nights not sleeping? Is their voice hoarse because they've been in a manic state and they're talking nonstop? Um, but grooming is, are they essentially taking care of themselves, what else, Um, how are they dressed, is it kind of odd, inappropriate for the weather, does it show some lack of judgment, Um, are they overly provocative, these are things you can document. Now you'll see a lot in mental status notes, Um, patient was well-groomed, oriented by three, and attractive, I don't know why people put that, it always bothered me, it's so subjective, why does that doctor get to decide who's attractive and who's not? but you'll see that I'm not exactly sure what attractive would signify, but they, it's, or, I mean, they never put are unattractive, but for some reason they always put when they're attractive. All right, motor behavior, some terms you can use as a patient tense, are they uptight? Are they rigid? Or are they kind of slumped over? Um, and is that consistent with a depressed mood that they're describing? Do they appear closed off, withdrawn? Does that change as they open up to you and, they, and they, are they capable of opening up or are they just staying in a withdrawn state the entire time? This is something you can describe. In your mental status note, you're painting a snapshot of the patient for other people to be able to read and actually see them. Um, see, maybe able to have a picture of that patient in their mind on that day where you encountered them. Are their movements slow, excitable? Are they impulsive? Um, are there any asymmetries in their face or body? Is there a droop, is there a weakness in one arm? So part of this is your neurologic exam, but it's also mental status exam. Do you see tremor, tics, dyskinesias, or dystonias? If so, write them in your mental status portion. Do you see nervous habits? Are they drumming the table, grinding their teeth, picking at their hair, picking at their skin? Some, any kind of um, behaviors to make you think that there's some sort of anxiety? odd mannerisms, do they have these kind of ritualized stereotype behaviors where they're rock or they'll do something with their hand and maybe that is something that even you're sitting there, they're not inhibiting. So sometimes you know, I have a restrictive repetitive behavior where I twirl my hair and I'm really tired, but if I'm up here, I'm not doing that, right? Because it's kind of odd. So if a patient is doing these behaviors, these kind of ritualized behaviors, um, in your office, that shows that they're they're probably a little bit stressed and it's a sign of, it's a diagnostic sign. So you wanna write that, document it. So mood is a little bit different from affect. In your mental status um, documentation, mood is considered the subjective emotional state on the timescale of weeks, right? So a little bit longer in duration and mood is something reported by the patient you can ask them questions like, how are you feeling? Um, you can give them more direct questions like, are you feeling discouraged or blue lately? Um, or if you've been feeling energized, elated. So you might have to directly probe to get at their mood. Affect is on the duration of minutes. So it's more like in the, it can fluctuate throughout the course of the psychiatric interview. So you might um, notice that their affect is either congruent with what they're talking about or incongruent. Like if you've had a patient, if you've seen someone who's gone through significant degree of trauma, sometimes when they're describing things that are horrific, their voice will just stay totally flat, monotone. They don't have the, the emotional prosody, the tone of voice that would be consistent with the awful things that they're telling you have happened. So you just wanna make those observations When affect is either congruent or incongruent with the content of what they're saying, you want to observe if their affect is blunted. What does that mean? If it's just kind of doesn't have a a lot of vivacity to it, if it's just um, like a a low monotone voice, not much facial expression, um, flat basically, emotional flattening. You would put that in your note. You'd put whether their emotion is broad in range. Um, Does it Is it in in the sense of they're emotionally very expressive and they talk about sad topics and they're sad and they talk about happy topics and they're happy? Or is it more restricted in scope and that the patient is so sad that they can't quite get out of that, so they only show sadness? Um, Or are they labile? Are their emotions going up and down so rapidly that it's it's kind of like a roller coaster for you? These are just terms you can put, labile, blunted, congruent or incongruent with content. So here are more descriptors for your mental status note, things to just think about when you're with the patient. It, sometimes these reminders are good in the beginning. If you keep like a cheat sheet around, right to, for your documentation, just to remind you, and then over time you get more used to using these terms. Speech and language, so you want to describe um, patient speech. Sometimes there'll be some loss of prosody. So prosody is the ups and downs of your voice, how you know when someone's asking a question because it will end with a certain, you know, how are you feeling today? That's a question. Um, so you can hear the prosody. If patients don't have that, it would be called dysprosodic. Dysarthric is more of a you know, neurologic sign, some damage to premotor speech articulatory, artic- that's hard to articulate speech articulatory areas. (laughs) Um, So dysarthric is when you can't articulate the word articulate. So you might mumble it or um, kind of slur your way through it. If a patient does that, then you can qualify it as, or um, describe it as a dysarthric. Disfluent is when their speech is is not very fluent. It might be slow and halting. Um, Inaudible is so hard, it's really hard to hear. They speak so softly. Pressured speech, we know from mania, it's got that intensity to it. So again, these are just different terms that are good to be aware of in terms of describing speech abnormalities. When you assess language, you want to find out if there are language comprehension issues. Um, Can they follow simple or complex commands? You'll do that in your mental status formal examination. And are there language expression issues? Do you hear in their speech certain paraphasias? So paraphasias are um, when a patient replaces one word with another. They may or may not be aware of it. So um, for example, if I went, to, say, I went to, to the zoo and instead of saying elephant, you know, I, I, I said something like um, pelotent. That would be a phonemic paraphasia. But if I meant to say elephant and instead I said giraffe, that would be a semantic paraphasia. So when you replace one word with the wrong word, it's a semantic paraphasia. A phonemic is when you change the phoneme. So sometimes patients' speech will be riddled with these types of paraphasias. And we'll talk more in the language lecture about what that means in terms of aphasia differentials. But it's just good to document in your note if you hear that language expression issue. Thought process um, and form. So when we talk about thought processes, there's always this understanding that our speech is assumed to be logical and goal-directed, that when people talk to us, we make the assumption that what they're saying is going to have a logic, there's some reason they're talking to us, they're trying to communicate something, um, and when that doesn't happen, we say there's some sort of abnormality in thought process. So in psychiatric patients, they can have thought disorder, and disordered thought can be tangential, so people are no longer Following the rules the, um, of communication, if they're just going on and on and on and on and on and on in tangents for no purpose, right? That's called tangential, wandering, oblique, irrelevant. And the thing about tangential is you can make the link, you can follow the thread when a patient's talking, you can see how one thought leads to the next, but it's still going off and um, can, can take up a lot of time. Circumstantial is when you ask them a question and they go around, and around, and around, and around, and around, and round, but eventually come back to the answer. So that would be the term for that. Winding, tedious in detail. Derailed is when they just go off and there's no apparent connection between ideas. So it's different than tangential in the sense that you can't find the thread. One thought will lead to the next and it's not clear how they're related. Flight of ideas is kind of similar where they're just jumping, they're saying one thing and then another thing, they have a thousand ideas and this is kind of what you see in a manic state, right? Where they're just excited about each idea. But again, the communicative act breaks some sort of pragmatic rules that we all hold as a society that there should be logical and goal directed. Perseverative is when a patient keeps going on a certain topic, they can't let it go. Um, I had a frontal lobe patient once who, it was was actually, well-accomplished physician who had a frontal lobe tumor and had surgery removed, and I was doing his assessment, and his wife said to me that the most disturbing symptom for her the day after his surgery was that, I mean, he's a really respected physician, and any time someone would come to the hospital to visit them, he kept perseverating on this idea of a chocolate cake he had had that morning. They brought to him, someone had brought it, and he was just so good, and he told everyone about it, and he couldn't let go of this Topic of the chocolate cake, and she said it was so odd because it wasn't like him, because clearly it was, you know, people were saying, why does he keep talking about that? Perseveration is they just can't let go of a certain idea. Um, you see that across a lot of different disorders, autism spectrum disorder, schizophrenia, where they just get caught and they can't get away from a topic. Clanging in schizophrenia, where they, they'll link words by their sounds, um, and neologisms are another, it means neo Logist new word, essentially patients with schizophrenia will sometimes make up words. So um, neologistic speech is often a term used to describe the type of speech or thought process you hear in schizophrenia. And then thought blocking is when patients will just stop talking as if they, they, they just, and you, and you can't be sure why, but they'll just stop. And so the term for that is thought blocking. So, Patients can also have disordered thought content. So you can have thought disorder, and you can have some degree of reality distortion with mental illness. And when we talk about disordered thought content, um, one—I mean—you t- know this already from your schizophrenia lecture. So I, I hate to be repetitive, but you know the term ruminative means when patients are preoccupied with specific themes or memories or thoughts or worries. And it's a little bit different than perseverative. Perseverative is like, it's a really constricted, restricted idea. Ruminative is just, let's say, someone will worry about anything, but they can't stop worrying. So you might, why why don't you just let that go? But a person who's stuck in the loop of rumination will go over and over in their minds and they can't let it go. So that's, it makes it a little bit different than this perseverative thinking. And you would describe that in your note, right? As a patient appeared to be ruminative or patient ruminated on recent stressors at school or work. Obsessive, so you know from your lectures with Dr. Kirkby, it's when patients have unwanted concerns or ideas or images and they intrude into consciousness, right, they can't, these are, they're hard to differentiate, obsessive from ruminative and perseverative, but they're all things a patient just can't let go of, right, and it breaks that rule we have in society of lo- all thought and communication should be logical and goal directed. In psychiatric patients, it's not always the case and you wanna be able to document that in your notes. Of course, delusional, when their beliefs are at odds with conventional sociocultural views. And as you know from your lecture, they can be fixed or fluctuating, mood congruent or mood incongruent. They can be bizarre in content. And again, you wanna note that. So here are some possible questions for the mental status exam, for patients when you want to probe their thought content, they won't always tell you, so you have to kind of get at it by asking them. Um, Ask them to explain their religion. They'll tell you a lot about it, and and schizophrenic patients will, will often go on and on. But you can ask, do you feel detached from the world? Do you feel like someone intends to harm you to get them talking about it? And hallucinations, again, you have to differentiate them from simple illusions. Hallucinations are sensory experiences that occur without any external stimulation. So some possible questions if you want to get at whether they have hallucinations. Do you sometimes misinterpret things around you, um, such as shadows or muffled voices? Do you hear things or see things that other people don't see? And then you want to probe in your mental status exam and you you want to probe their insight, their judgment. Um, to understand how much much awareness do they have of their own symptoms or deficits. So what seems to be the problem? Again, these open-ended questions during interview you can ask, what do you think is causing it? How would you describe your role in the situation? These are just ways of getting at their level of insight. Judgment would be their ability to organize and manipulate information to make decisions and to regulate their own behavior. So how do you get at their judgment in a mental status exam? Um, you can ask them questions. Sometimes they're formalized in like the Folstein, which you'll be giving in your small group. They're formalized questions to assess their level of judgment and insight. And then assessing cognition. Again, you can do that in different ways. You can give them a digit span task, spell world backwards. That's what's gonna be in your Folstein exam. Serial sevens, again, will be in your mental status exam that you're giving. You can ask them to remember autobiographical details from their life to probe their um, episodic or autobiographical memory. You can give them three words and ask them to recall them after five minutes. Um, To assess their intellectual functions, you can ask them some declarative facts, information about the world. Um, Ask them what we call verbal similarities. How are chair and table alike? How are love and hate alike? So this gets at some level of their just general intellectual functioning. Asking them what proverbs mean. And here is a general acronym that you can use to remind you of all the things you wanna document in your mental status note, right? This is kind of just a a way of, of reminding you the things you need to think about when you're interacting with the patient and to make sure you're documenting. Okay, so now let's talk about a difficult clinical scenario How could you best use your time with the patient in this type of scenario? Okay, so in this scenario, our patient may not be giving you reliable data, right? Because it sounds like she, she may have some cognitive difficulties, but you can't be sure, right? Until you administer a few cognitive tasks to determine the, the, the degree to which she has some cognitive difficulties. So do you just sit there and wait for the daughter to come back to get some reliable information or you do go ahead and administer some tasks to go ahead and do your mental status exam while you're waiting to just see and be able to document the extent of her cognitive difficulties. So in this case, you would want to go ahead, good, most of you got that, and administer the mental status examination. And then when the daughter comes, you would want to interview, and you would want to get accurate information from the daughter about the onset, the history, uh, more details about the medical history from the daughter because you can't be sure those details are gonna be accurate if you get them from the patient. And the last aspect of this lecture, we're gonna talk about suicidality and homicidality risk. So this, one of the most difficult things you'll be doing in a psychiatric evaluation because in some cases you're going to be suggesting a patient be hospitalized and that may or may not be what they had in mind when they came to see you. So it's very important that you provide accurate documentation of your thinking, right? That you can document the risk factors with suicidality or homicidality, so that it's clear to anyone reading your note why you hospitalized or recommended hospitalization for the patient. So you assess risk of harm to or by the patient, and you want to probe their attitudes, ideas, especially their intentions. Do they intend to act? Do they have a plan? So you want to make sure that you get the details and determine whether they've done it before. Have they actually carried out um, suicide or attempts in the past and how lethal were they? So sometimes they're more gestures, sometimes they're they're lethal attempts and that makes a difference. You want to find out if there are other risk factors, if they have poor impulse control, if they have a prior history of violence Um, Possible questions that you can ask a patient, you can start off pretty general. Do you feel that life isn't worth living? And, or do you feel better off, like you'd be better off dead? Do you ever think about taking your own life? Have you actually taken steps? So you wanna find out their past history? And it's really critical that you ask them what stops you because that's going to get at the protective factors. What keeps them from doing that? Again, I want to remind you, you always have to remember, what what in the patient is health promoting? What's going to help you work with them to get to a healthier place? So what stops them? What kinds of thoughts do they have that are more health promoting? And then you can ask them what what do they think happens after they die? Maybe they have religious reasons for not wanting to commit suicide, and that would be a protective factor. And then you want to get family history. And very similar for homicidality. Some possible questions, do you ever think about getting even with people who have wronged you? Do you have the desire to hurt others? Again, what stops you? Are any of your family members violent? So in a similar way, you want to describe or ask questions that get at these predictive factors. The best or the most important predictive factor are prior attempts. That's the strongest predictor of a subsequent suicide attempt or a history of self-harm or having psychiatric symptoms. If they have um, recent stressors, that can be a risk factor. If they're in severe chronic pain, or if they have traumatic brain injury, frontal lobe, we talked about how they can be more impulsive if they had a frontal lobe injury. And essentially, they might then, then act impulsively to take their own life. So that is a risk factor. Homicidality are similar. Um, substance abuse and male sex are additional predictive factors or homicidality, but again, having a psychiatric history um, or a family history of suicidality or homicidality is predictive. A traumatic brain injury or access. So it's really important to ask them, do they have a gun in the home? Do they have a way of, of hurting themselves or others? And again, document. Um, so protective factors, having a strong social support, having a sense of spirituality, um, having positive coping skills, knowing how to solve problems in a, in a positive way, having therapeutic relationships, social relationships in their life that are satisfying, all of those serve as protective factors. So again, the important thing about all of this is that you have the terms, you have the ability to document your thinking so that if you have to hospitalize, um, it's very clear when people follow your, your train of thought as to why you consider that patient to be a danger to themselves or a danger to others. Okay, we're just gonna go through a couple of questions before we finish the lecture to test your knowledge about suicide and homicidality, or just basically suicidality risk here. Okay, in this case, you have to document the risk factors. Let's pull them out. What are they? So she's saying she has a plan, but she's also intoxicated. And when she sobers up the next day, she's saying she she denies any suicidal attempt. Um, Let's see, she has a history of self-cutting. That's a risk factor. She has prior suicidation, but she's never tried before. So having no prior attempts. is, should be taken into consideration. She doesn't own a gun, she doesn't have access to one, so she has no, no access or no plan. And it, the key here is, although she has several risk factors, the fact that she denies further suicidal intent the next day, and um, essentially, even though she has risk factors, she's saying she doesn't actually wanna do it, we would consider this potentially more of a suicidal gesture. So her risk is not low, because there are risk factors, But it's not high, so it's somewhere in the middle. This is a more real-life case where it's somewhere in the middle. So not to frustrate you too much, I'm going to give you a couple more clear-cut cases, or maybe just one more because we don't have a lot of time. But let's think through this one. Okay, so here we see a lot of risk factors. Um, Patient has a recent stressor, a precipitant failing grades. He's made an attempt, that's why he's in the hospital. Um, He actually gave away his possessions, wrote a suicide note. He declares he'll do it again. Um, In this case, it's much more clear cut, and you can document with certainty that he's high risk for suicide. So he would need to be hospitalized. Good, okay, a lot of you agreed with that. And then we'll go ahead and finish up so you can get to your stats from the dean. Yay, all right, thank you for your attention.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, I will need maybe 10, 15 minutes from your time to show you a little bit of the things we do so you get a little bit of an idea. Uh, So I'm going to put up a a very quick PowerPoint. A personal kind of uh, suggestion here. Uh, The the topics that Dr. Blackman was mentioning to you are extremely important. So when I was, back in the days, uh, practicing we always have a tendency to um, concentrate on the actual big problem, let's say the heart of the patient, or the lungs, or the open wound. And many times we kind of forget all the other important things that are going on, which many times is far more important than you know, the actual heart problem or lung. So try to pay some attention. I didn't pay attention when I was a medical student, and I have to admit that. And. I was very lucky. One of my best friends was a psychiatry resident, so I would always consult, which means I don't know what's going on, and the official word of that is consultation, right? So it it would have been nice if I knew. Uh, I even diagnosed myself one day about uh, manic disorders. Can you believe that? I remember in microbiology, actually, I diagnosed myself with every microbe that you can imagine. I I thought I was infected. I'm like, I have that. I have an itching in my head. It must be this. (laughs) So one second. So you know us from uh, last time we met with you. We look so nice here. The Adobe Photoshop is the best software if you want to look good on uh, pictures. Uh, my assistant deans, they're supposed to be somewhere. So it's Dr. Kloons. I just saw him walking in up there. Uh, Dr. Kolbinger, uh, uh, Dr. Kirkby, and my newest assistant dean, Dr. Nitsa Topali. She, she was in our office. She just got promoted. Very well-deserved promotion. Also, Dr. Havaga, educational analyst. Dr. Ian Mary is in charge of research. Our emails, in case that you want to email us. And, of course, all our secretarial staff. We talked about that. Let me tell you a little bit what we do with communications. One of the issues that I think we have a small gap is that we do a lot of things, but not all the things we do, they're coming down to you. And sometimes you're like, "Uh, I don't know what's going on. And even if we do the meet the deans like today or as we did it last term, still not everybody remembers. Trust me, the BSc1 exam is far more important than what the dean will tell you today. And I don't blame you for that. But we will try to also improve that. So we have a couple of things we do. Number one, you have student representation in, with the SGA. So we meet with SGA almost every month. So whatever things you think is important for them to tell us, please bother them and say, hey, make sure that they know XYZ. Second thing is Student Academic Affairs Committee. That's a big committee with faculty and students, and they're discussing every type of issues they may have. The curriculum committee, when we design how to change a course, we have focus groups. So you have a very large representation there. Again, try through your SGA to involve yourself to be there and spread the word exactly what the committees they do. Interim evaluations, those are huge. Interim evaluations and the final evaluations, which is the end of course reports. Please write down what you think could be improved, could be nice. Don't try to be vindictive, like, I hate you guys. That's really not helpful, all right? It's a hate, hate and love relationship, obviously, but we would like to hear from you what worked well and also what it did not work and how we can fix that. Give us your ideas, your unbiased, Uh, Maybe we're a little bit biased because we do that type of job for so many years, but just 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 say your opinion, I think the internet doesn't work well, and we would like to have a better internet as an example. Sure. That's that's great. Uh, We developed a Sakai site, so you're getting from us emails and different type of communications. We established the monthly meetings with SGA, so that's very, very helpful. We created a scheduling committee. So the scheduling committee is the students, together with Dr. Kolbinger, who is the responsible for scheduling. So whatever things they did not work out in term four, they will be fixed. So when you go up to term four, you will not have the same issues. And the same thing is for you guys, whatever issues you had this term, you're gonna let us know or you let know the committee. So the term ones coming in, they will not have the same problems. It works really nice. I don't know if you heard, but in uh, term five, we had the BSE two exam who was Tuesday, Wednesday, and the pharmacology exam was on Friday. When we did it during the summer, the scheduling together with SGA, we thought that is okay. We maybe underestimated a little bit the uh, severity of having, you know, BSE2 and then one and a half day. I mean, we are young, right? Including myself in that. So, what's the big deal? Apparently, it would be better if we have a couple of days off. So, for the incoming now term five class, what we did is we moved the exam from Friday to Monday. So now the students, they will have off Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then we'll have the exam on Monday. But to change something like that is a little bit more complex. So let's say we had to call the chair of clinical skills. Can you please take away one of the hospital visits so we can accommodate an exam on Monday, and so on and so forth. But it happened. So I know in the air sometimes it's like the administration doesn't care. right? I don't know for which administration you talk about, but we as administrators, directly with you, we we care a lot. we created also a, a dashboard with projects, something like that, that we're gonna post so you will see for what type of things we're working and what is the, where is the project. So one is uh, clinical tutor variability and feedback on performance. In other words, the SGA came up and said, look, couple of tutors are great, couple of tutors are not so good. Can we fix that? I said, absolutely. So we, we do certain things. So one of the things that we do is to create a better evaluating tool. So the tutor was problematic where? In the content? In the behavior? Both? What was the issue? So we need to identify that. The, 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 the third thing, as you will go to the fifth term, you're going to use the B line, which is individual rooms with a bunch of cameras. Everything gets recorded, and they provide you feedback. But you don't do that in the small groups of Term 1, 2, and 4. So we're going to try to get a bunch of cameras and some mics. So, when you have a small group, we can record that and we can provide feedback then to the tutor, like, look, when you mentioned that, maybe the content was not exactly right, or maybe you need to do that, so we can improve that whole process and not just, you know, you need to improve. Okay, where? Um, another one it was uh, uh, Sonic Foundry. So, Pathology did not have Sonic Foundry videos released to the students up to this term. And that had to do with copyright issues and a couple of other stuff. So we sorted it out. So this term, all the fourth termers, they received the full Sonic Foundry video after the lectures of pathology. So that was a very, very big thing. Another one, for example, was, oops, uh, we talk about BSC2. BBM2, course syllabus, you got it on time, right? So when you came to the course, the course syllabus was there, right? Last term, it was a delay of three weeks. So it was something that we fixed, so you didn't have an issue of receiving the course syllabus late. Uh, another thing that we're not good at, at and we're working on it. As an example, we got, um, we got the feedback from, let's say, students who were really...